Shabbat shalom, everyone. Well, we are going to continue to unearth Paul's epistle to the Galatians, and uh, we have a little bit of ground to cover today, so we're just going to get right into it. And last week we left off at verse 9, so let's pick it up in verse 10. And this is what we read. For as many as are of the works of the Torah are under the curse. Now, to truly appreciate what Paul just said, uh, we again have to beat a dead horse and understand the backdrop. What is the thrust? What is the purpose of Paul even writing to the Galatians? The Galatians are falling into this trap, this seductive lie that they cannot be saved unless they get circumcised in the flesh despite having already been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the living God. Despite them possessing this, somehow there have been certain men that have crept in unnoticed, as Paul says. They snuck in by stealth and they have persuaded the Galatians that isn't enough. They can't be saved. And so here we see Paul makes this statement. For as many as of the works of the law, they're under a curse. See, Galatians, you think, you think you're doing what is right. You think you're going into righteousness, into salvation. And Paul's telling them it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite of what they think is actually happening. They're going into the curse. And to prove this, I love this, what Paul does here. He actually says, for it is written. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, well... According to my opinion, I think he goes to Scripture. He's going to take them to the Torah, specifically to Deuteronomy 27, 26. And what he's about to quote here, he's going to quote this out of the Septuagint. And what he's going to quote is the crescendo. We had talked about this. It's the crescendo of the great curse chapter, where these 12 curses are laid out. These are the curses that would have been confirmed on Mount Ebal. Cursed is everyone who makes a graven image. Cursed is the one who leads the blind off the road. Cursed is the one that does not honor his mother and father. But then you come to the crescendo, and it's this passage. This is what he says. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. They're cursed. And Paul, to offer the proof of this, where they're going, he reminds them of what the Torah itself says. Now, why is this passage even scary? And how does this fly? Curses everyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Let us remember, because every one of us have failed to keep it. So what happens when you seek to go to be justified explicitly by the Torah? You're a dead man. And this is what Paul is bringing to the table. Very, very powerful. Now, just to further help you understand where Paul is coming from, I want to take you back to Galatians 5. Because in Galatians 5, he actually finishes this thought with perfect clarity. And this is what he says. Stand fast, therefore, by the liberty by, it, by which Messiah has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Mashiach will profit you nothing. Now, one thing, and I can just tell you this, I still have so much to learn. Just in the faith, in God's word, I have so much to learn. But one thing I can tell you without reservation, I don't want to go to any place 
where Messiah Yeshua will not profit me anything because that is a place of death. You don't need to be a theological rocket scientist to figure that one out. But this is scary because this is where they're going. And this is exactly what Paul is telling them. You're going to a place where there isn't Christ. He isn't going to profit you anything. Moving on. And if I testify, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, you're going to be coming under a curse. Exactly what he said in verse 10. You have become estranged, meaning cut off from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the Torah, you have fallen from grace. Again, I tell you, the reason Paul is willing to suffer persecution for this message that the Gentiles who are coming in and being anointed with the Holy Spirit do not need to get circumcised in the flesh, the reason he's willing to suffer for this cause is because salvation is on the line. Actual salvation, to pull someone off of the grace of God is to kill them. And the devil is very, very seductive. And as I mentioned before, and we are just talking about it this morning in the prayer room, the devil is brilliantly, unfortunately, clever, and he will utilize Torah to his advantage. And that is exactly what's happening to these Galatians. The Torah is being perverted. The truth is not being given to them. Paul is delivering the truth to them. Moving on to verse 11. This is what we read, Galatians chapter 3. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Isn't that amazing? You know what we're going to see all day today? Paul can't help himself. He keeps going back to the Tanakh. He keeps going back to the Torah. He keeps going back to the prophets. To what? To literally support what he's telling them is the truth. He's trying to get them to understand the totality of the situation. Now he's taking them back to the prophet Habakkuk. Specifically to Habakkuk 2.4. And I, I, I got to tell you, if you really want to have a deep understanding of what the Torah is all about, you want to understand what the Torah is ultimately instructing us to do, asking from us in, in this relationship, if you will, you need to understand Habakkuk 2.4. In fact, to further help you appreciate the magnitude of what's really being conveyed in this statement, I want to take you to the Talmud today because they actually have this fascinating discussion on man's responsibility uh, in, in, with the Torah and what the Torah is really asking of us to do. And this is found in Tractate Makot, but this is what we read. Rabbi Simlai, when preaching, said 613 precepts were communicated to Moshe. 365 negative precepts corresponding to the number of solar days in the year, and 248 positive precepts corresponding to the number of the members of a man's body. Now, so if, if, if you're ever wondering where did the 613 commandments come from, this, this goes way back into Jewish tradition and how the rabbis actually uh, understood how many commandments the Torah were really on. They'd gone through and in fact, I think they have even apps that you can find today that list all 613 commandments. Um, really fascinating. But this goes way back into history. This is how they've looked at it. And the rabbis have compartmentalized or, or separated uh, them into positive and negative. So your negatives would be, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. A positive would be, you shall honor 
your mother and father. Okay, so they separate these, these two, the negative from the positive, but collectively what they're saying is, is this is what the Torah is asking of us. 613 precepts. Now, how many of you ever had those conversations? Because I have, uh, actually with even with Christian pastors uh, who, who are fascinated that, oh, you're in this Messianic Judaism thing, this first century Judeo-Christianity. How do you really do that? Isn't there like 613 commandments in the Torah? And so for Christians, they look at the number and they're immediately intimidated. You know what? You, you, you talk to somebody, you know what, Daniel? I got enough problems uh, without you dumping 613 reasons why I'm a loser, even in addition to my life and the struggles that I'm having. And so you, you look at this, and I, and I honestly, this is not a joke. I've had these conversations so many times where I, I realize the weight of the matter, when, when Christians perceive all these law, all they feel is this oppressiveness. There's so many, six, in other words, I can't ever do that. Why would you put me up to that? I'll never, I'll never be able to accomplish that. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Well, here's, here's where it gets really interesting, is that you follow the train of thought here. Okay, so they've identified that, yes, there's 613, and of course, I would personally debate that number, because what you find is uh, the very same verse is actually broken sometimes two into three different commandments. There's multiple, but be that it may, let's just go with this. Let's say there are these 613. I want you to understand, from tradi- even from traditional Judaism, and from the, 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 the thought behind this, what happens as we continue in this? Because it gets interesting. David, as in King David, came and reduced them to 11 principles. As it is written, a psalm of David, Lord, who shall sojourn in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy mountain? And what it's referring to, who's going to get eternal life? Who is going to be the one to do this? Well, and it goes on with these 11 principles. You know, the, the, the person uh, who walketh uprightly, who works righteousness, speaks truth. He, he doesn't slander with his tongue. He does no evil, and so on forth. Really what this is, you just go to Psalm 15. It's quoting Psalm 15. And what the rabbis realized is that, wait a second. King David just condensed the entirety of the Torah and 11 principles. Powerful. When you think about it, the whole of Torah can be kept by going to Psalm 15. This is what they recognized. Obviously, not so intimidating when you look at it from this perspective. Well, that's not the end of the conversation. It goes on. Isaiah, your Yeshayahu, came and reduced them to six principles. As it is written, he that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, uh, that shaketh his hand from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ear from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from looking upon evil, he shall dwell on high, Isaiah 33. So now they recognize, well, David did something amazing, but Isaiah comes on and does even something more amazing in the context. He just took 613 commandments, and now we have six, where we can legitimately fulfill the Torah by going out and keeping these principles. Amazing. Micah came and reduced them to three principles. As it is written, it hath been told thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee. What does the Lord require? 
only to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God, Micah 6, 8. Whole entire Torah condensed to those principles. I absolutely would agree. There's no question about that. Again, Isaiah comes back to the table, reduces them to two. He won't be outdone. As it is said, thus says the Lord, keep ye justice and do righteousness. That's Psalm 56. That's how it opens. Keep justice and do righteousness. It's the whole of the Torah. Think about that. Well, it gets, it gets even more interesting. Amos came and reduced them to one principle. As it is said, for thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, seek ye me and live. Amos 5.4. To this Rabbi Naaman ben Yitzhak demurred, saying, might it not be taken as seek me by observing the whole Torah and live? Ah, but it is Habakkuk who came and based them all on one principle. What's he say? As it is said, the righteous shall live by his faith. This is, the, this is the crescendo of this discussion. And they come to the realization, I have 613 commandments in the Torah and all these things, but they can all be reduced down to one principle, the prophet Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. The very thing, isn't that interesting? The very thing Paul the Jew just quoted to the Galatians. Do you want to understand, Tori? Do you want to understand who's going to be that one, as King David said, that's going to dwell in the tabernacle? You need to pay attention to this, to Habakkuk. This is where you need to be. Moving on, chapter 3, verse 12. Yet the law, the Torah, is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. It's an interesting statement. The Torah is not of faith. First and foremost, we understand that. In other words, those who get circumcised in the flesh, they're not guaranteed an inheritance. And as we looked at last week, just because somebody is a physical descendant doesn't necessarily mean they're in the kingdom. Yes, God will, uh, he will fulfill his promise to Israel through physical descendants of the flesh. There's no question, through a remnant. But if you're a Jewish person today, you can't just sit back and say, well, Abraham is my father. That doesn't work. It is only by faith, because Abraham himself was a man of faith. So the law, the Torah, explicitly in and of itself, is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. I'm going to tell you, this statement is a little bit tricky. And I say tricky because it can be used either in a positive context or it can be used in the negative context. That's pretty important. Uh, considering we on, you want to understand what the Apostle Paul is trying to convey to the Galatians, you first have to determine how is this being used. And so just to kind of open your eyes up to this reality of this statement so that you understand it better, I want to take you to start off with to the Torah. And I want to show you how this statement is used because Paul's drawing from this. In Vayikra 18 verse 4, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. Now here it is. Which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now there's no question. You look at this. Hey, here's the deal. Here's my commandments. Just do them and what happens? You live. You will have high. You will have life. This is explicitly in the positive. There's no question about it. 
But here's the interesting thing. As we go on through the Tanakh, we find it has a negative context as well, such as in Nehemiah. And you testified against them that you might bring them back to your Torah. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments. Oh, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders and stiffened their necks and would not hear. There's no debate here. The entire passage is in the negative context. You do not do what I tell you. You fail to keep my commandments. If a man does, he will live by them. That's, that's really interesting. This is totally in the negative context. Now, a good way to understand this statement, which if a man does, he shall live by them, is the following. You will reap what you sow. Think of this. When you see this, which if a man does, he shall live by them, think you will reap what you sow, because that very statement can be used in the positive. If I say to someone who is, who is a man of good works, he opens wide his hand to the poor, he follows Yeshua, he proclaims his name, and I say to him, hey, you're going to reap what you sow. That's going to put a smile on his face because he's been walking with the Lord. He's been doing good. That's a good thing. If we see someone else stealing, cheating, committing adultery, doing all these evil things over here, and I tell him, you're going to reap what you sow. That is not so good. That's a completely, exact same statement, completely different context, which if a man does, he shall live by him. That's this statement, how this is being used. Let me show you one more to Ezekiel. I want to take you to Ezekiel 20 because there we actually, this is the beauty of this one. It shows it in a positive and in a negative context all together. So Ezekiel 20, verse 10, therefore I made them go out of the land of Egypt And brought them into the wilderness, and I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. This is explicitly in the positive context. Okay? But look at what happens as we continue. Yet, the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they despised my judgments. Oh, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. In Ezekiel, we have one time, it's used in the positive, and it follows in the negative. So this is, it, this is a context of you will reap what you sow. Now, this begs the question as we go back here. The law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. The question is, what is the context? Because it completely changes the passage. What is the context? We know what the context is. Now, every time I showed you those, whether we went to Leviticus, whether we went to Nehemiah, or whether we go to Ezekiel, how do you know when it says, which if a man does, he shall live by them, how, do we know, how are we supposed to take that? It is the immediate context that depicts the way it's defined. The immediate context. And just even in my example that I gave you, I'm talking to a good person who's doing good works. You shall reap what you sow. I understand that. You understand that. It's going to be good for him. That's a good statement. By the immediate context. What is the immediate context? Well, what did we just read in in, in Galatians 3.10? Those who are under the works of the law are under a curse. This is not good. This is a completely negative context. And then he says here, and the law is not a faith. Mashiach has redeemed us from the curse of the law. See, because this is all about being brought under a curse. And then Paul gives the good news in verse 13. 
Messiah has redeemed us from this curse of the law. See, when you, you think about what Paul was describing in verses 10, 11, 12, and, and a man that does them shall live by them, what do we know? What does Paul know? What is he getting across? None of us. He quoted Deuteronomy 27, 26 for a reason. Because none of us have kept the law perfectly. All of us have come under the curse of the law. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the context here. So now we get to verse 13. Yeshua has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And then he goes on, having become a curse for us. Oh, and here Paul goes again. He cannot help himself. He keeps going back to the Torah. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so he's actually drawing from Deuteronomy 21. And in Deuteronomy 21, it, it, it actually details those who are worthy of death to be put to death. They are to be put to death and they're to be killed and then hung on a tree. And then it literally says, the very last verse in Deuteronomy 21 says, and he who hangs on a tree is accursed of God. Paul is drawing this to their attention and saying, look at what Yeshua did. Look at what he became. He became what you, that should have been you hanging on the tree. Every one of us have failed under the law. We were all cursed. Yeshua reversed the curse, having become a curse for us. That's the beautiful gospel. That's the message that we have hope now and we can have life and we can have forgiveness and we can have a future. We can have inheritance, the inheritance that was promised to Abraham. Only for one reason, because Yeshua became that curse. Now, as Paul continues, he's going to tell us why. As I just explained, verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon, and he's specific here. Now, obviously, it first and foremost came upon Israel. But look at what he says, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Messiah Yeshua. Wake up, Galatians. Understand what happened on the cross. That's where, it all, that's where all the focus needs to be. The only reason you have the blessing of Abraham was because of that blood that was drawn. That circumcision. What, what did Paul call in, in Colossians 2.11, he says, In him you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by putting on the circumcision of Christ. He calls it the circumcision of Christ. What happened on the cross literally was the circumcision of Christ. So when Gentiles confess Yeshua as Lord, as Master, as Savior, they are getting literally circumcised by Christ. They are putting on the circumcision of Christ. This is why I keep telling you, they have been circumcised. These Galatians are already circumcised and you can't do better than Christ. Cannot happen. You're literally certain. It's interesting, there's a story and it ties in. In Exodus chapter four, and I'm sure many of you have read it, if you're following the Torah portions and so forth, at some point you come across it. But it's one of the stories that makes no sense it's been a cause of major debates and major, major people writing articles and different. And why is this even in here? Because the very story, it's like somebody took this story and forced it into the text where it doesn't belong because it doesn't fit. It comes out of nowhere. There's no consistency. And what that story is, is Moses, he's on his way. And we read in the text that God desired to kill him. Exodus 4, God desired to kill him fascinating thing. Zipporah meets Moses. 
on his way. She meets Moses on his way, but here's what's interesting. She circumcises her son and literally throws the foreskin at Moses' feet, bloody and all, and says, you are a husband of blood to me. Think about that statement. You are a husband of blood to me. That story is not an accident. Number one, Moses, the prophet that was to come, was to be like the prophet unto Moses. This is the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. Moses is a template of that. And it's interesting, it said God desired to kill him. What did God desire to do to the prophet like unto Moses to kill him? He put him on a cross. It's exactly what he did. And what's amazing is here you have the bride, literally of Moshe, this symbolically being the bride, being Israel, being the people that are redeemed, being Yeshua's bride. And she throws the circumcision, the blood of her son and says, you're a husband of blood to me. When you think of the cross, this is what Paul is seeing. He's looking at the cross, the blood being, being drawn. That's what happens with circumcision. You have to draw blood. That's what it is. It's the cutting away of the flesh. It's the drawing of blood. He was dripping with blood on the tree. The circumcision of Christ. Powerful. See, this is what Paul sees, and he is trying desperately. He is surrounding these Galatians every way you could possibly imagine with scripture after scripture after scripture. Try to pull them out of the fire, this fire of ignorance that they're in. And then you look at this right here, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles and Messiah Yeshua, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Again, I reiterate, and we covered this a little bit, how do we receive the, the Spirit? How do we receive the, the Holy Spirit? It is through faith alone in the Messiah Yeshua, that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You make that confession with your mouth. That's when you get this anointing. And what is that anointing? All throughout scripture, we see what that anointing entails and what it really means. It means that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You, that, that mark of circumcision made without hands, that anointing of the Holy Spirit is proof of inheritance. It's the proof that you're a child of Abraham. Now, I don't know how you could possibly, and this is Paul's issue, how do you add to that? How do you outdo the circumcision of Christ? You can't. It's impossible. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed. Now, this is interesting. Paul identifies this seed as Mashiach, as Yeshua. Well, if you go back to Genesis 22, what you find is really, on, 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 at least on, on the physical plateau who's, been, who's being talked about here, it's Isaac. But here again, you see Paul drawing the Galatians back and said, look at, look at Isaac. He's a prophetic template. He's a prophetic template of the Messiah, Yeshua. Awesome. Awesome. And, and, and here's the, just think about Genesis 22 for a second. The typologies are unreal. The context of Genesis 22 is unreal. Right at the front, Abraham command, or God commands Abraham, take your son. 
But he doesn't just say, take your son. He says, take now your only son, Isaac. It is a peculiar statement because Isaac isn't his only son. In fact, Ishmael was born long before him. He was a teenager before Isaac was ever born. And yet the Lord, when he comes to Abraham, says, take now your only son, Isaac. That's fascinating. See, because when I read in the New Testament, I read the father calling Yeshua his only begotten son. Oh, go back to the context of Genesis 22. Abraham's commanded to take Isaac, his only son, where? To Yerushalayim, to bind him, that he might be sacrificed. That is the context. The very context we see unfolding between the father and Yeshua as we get into the New Testament. Powerful. And, and I mean, all of these, and this, this could be a whole nother series in itself, but with, with Isaac, all these typologies that exist, you know, Abraham's servant actually called Isaac master. He called him Adon. Do you know that Abraham gave everything he had? He had all these children. By the time he died, he had all these descendants. He didn't give them anything of an inheritance. He gave everything he had, and it's explicit in Genesis 25, everything he had went to Isaac. Wasn't that fascinating? Because when I read John 16, Yeshua says, everything that the Father has is mine. Everything that the Father has was given to his son. Everything that Abraham had was given to his son. I mean, the whole Genesis 22 is absolutely unreal. And Paul is taking them back there and showing them, go back to Genesis 22 and look at this seed. This seed is really Isaac. Now, something I want to point out in Genesis 22 is what pertains to this seed. It says, in your seed, this is God speaking to Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The seed is the key. And you really need to identify it because through that seed, all the nations of the world, oh, Gentiles, oh, Galatians, the Galatians are going to be blessed through the seed and Paul identifies it. Who is that seed? Where does that blessing, where is that inheritance coming from? It's coming from the Messiah, Yeshua. Continuing on in verse 17. In this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later. Now this is important. He's talking about from the time of promise, 430 years went, and then there was the giving of the law. Listen to what he says. It cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Mashiach that it should make the promise of no effect. In other words, what Paul just said, he said, when the promise was made, despite the law coming in afterward, 430 years later, make no mistake, that coming in of the law, literally bringing it, does not make the promise void. It doesn't make it null and void. It's still active it still exists. This is important as, as we continue. For if the inheritance is of the Torah, well, then it's no longer of promise. That promise, that what? That God gave to Abraham. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. All right? Now, you think of it. Did God give it to Abraham while circumcised or while uncircumcised? Another point that Paul has stressed. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And so, you know, for these Galatians to obtain that promise, you have to believe in it. You have to understand that promise, amen? And as of right now, they don't, and they aren't. 
They don't believe that they can possess this inheritance unless they receive circumcision in the flesh. Continuing on in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was going here. You knew this was coming. You have to deal with this. Paul has to answer, ask this question and he has to answer it. What is the purpose of the law? What purpose did it serve? It was added because of transgressions. Do you understand? What did Paul say in Romans 7? I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Go to Romans 3. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, those passages indicate and, and, and correlate to this very statement. Sin is in the world. Why bring the law into it? Well, because of sin. To open the eyes up. To give man the ability to, dis, to distinguish between good and evil. That's what it's about. That's why we bring the law in. But he's not done. Till the seed should come. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. I want you to notice here, Paul identifies two specific points in time. Critical moments in history. You have the giving of the law, right? The era of the law, if you will. And then you have the era of the Messiah. The era of the fulfillment of what God promised Abraham. This seed. The era of the seed to come. Now here's what's interesting about this. This this is naturally understood in traditional Judaism. This, this, how Paul is laying this out here is how traditional Judaism, the expectation that they had, how it would unfold. And I'll show you this. This comes from Sanhedrin, Tractate Sanhedrin. It says, the house of Elijah said, for 6,000 years the world will exist. Now look at this. For 2,000 years it will be desolate. For 2,000 years will be a time of Torah. And 2,000 years will be the days of the Mashiach. You see that? See, there's a time of chaos. That's where there is no law. But then God brought the law in, okay? But that wasn't the end of it. There was something else he was going to do. Then the seed was going to come. And something very important to understand about this, notice that with each movement, things get better and better. We're in a time of chaos, but it got better because then the Lord brought the law. And it even got better than the law because then he brought the Messiah. Absolutely beautiful. So getting back here to verse 19, going back, what purpose then does the law serve? Well, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. I wanted to come back here because we're not done with this passage. You know, when we look at this, I can see, and because it's been quoted to me so many times, uh, this is actually one of, the, one of the, I would say, one of the heaviest quoted verses to me. Anytime I bring up the Torah, I'm talking about the validity of the law with uh, believers. This is uh, a passage that comes uh, to the table because uh, Paul, if you just isolate this and look at it as it's written, it appears he's given the impressions that the law was to be in effect. It was to be uh, totally established until... The seed is revealed. And then at that moment, well, the law is done. The law is rendered useless. It's rendered null and void. Now, we already talked about this. 
When you go to interpret passages and you're saying, well, is that, is that, and you're thinking in your mind, what, what's Paul really saying here? Understand one of the most basic principles of hermeneutics is it must be consistent with the totality of the word. You must be able to build a case on it. Okay, it has to be consistent. There has to be consistency through it. If you find that you read something and go, well, what about this passage? What about this passage? And you start doing this in your head, you're not interpreting it right. Or you may just know that there's something that you don't understand that you need to investigate further. I can tell you right off the bat, there isn't a question in my mind that I can't come away with this passage understanding what Paul has just said here What he's referring to is that the law has been made null and void with the coming of Christ. And I first and foremost say that because of his own words. And I'm not talking, I'm talking in Galatians. Paul prohibits you from going to that place. Paul prohibits you from going there in his other epistles, such as Romans. I mean, it's incredible. Passage after passage, establishing the law, fulfilling the law. This is what he does in Galatians. This is what he does in Romans. So we know right off the bat, there's no way. But then you have the crown jewel that prohibits you from interpreting this passage as though when when Christ came, the law would be made null and void. And that is Matthew 5.17. In Matthew 5.17, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Don't even think of it. Now, I want to be clear just to start this off. He was speaking to a Jewish audience, and one thing that you need to appreciate is the context of that. And Yeshua expressing this to a Jewish audience, I want to be very clear. His Jewish audience never for a moment even contemplated a Messiah coming that would do away with the law. In other words, what I'm saying is is that that statement is really bizarre in the context of which it's written. It wouldn't make no sense at all to the Jews. You'd be like, what are you talking about? Okay, so you're claiming to be the Messiah and you're telling us you're not doing away with a big whoop. We weren't expecting a Messiah to do it. We have been waiting for a Messiah to come and teach us the Torah. That's what they were waiting for. And so the point I'm making here is, is you need to read Matthew 5, 17. It's peculiar. It's very peculiar. What is Yeshua doing? He's prophesying. It is a prophecy knowing what men would do and the way they would interpret his coming. Oh, the seed. When the seed is revealed, he knew he was the seed. And what would happen? He knew exactly where men would go and that, oh, Christ came. And because Christ came, well, the law has been done away with. And so he prophesies, do not think that it came to destroy the law and the prophets. So we can't go there based upon Yeshua's own prophetic warning uh, to us. Now, I want to say something. As we're looking at this, something that you need to understand about the Torah. Okay, so here you have the promise given to Abraham, not fulfilled. 430 years go by. The promise isn't fulfilled. The Lord gives the Torah. He gives the Torah. Let me ask you, was that the end of the story? Was that God's completion of his total plan? Absolutely not. It was part of his plan. That wasn't the completion of his plan. It was part of his plan. The completion of the plan would be his only begotten son. It would be what he accomplished on the cross. And not just that, let me point out something else about the law. It it pertains to why the Lord brought it first. I mean, why not go from promise to fulfillment to promise? 
And you'll see this throughout scripture where you have these righteous men, they will send their servants before them. Yeshua sent them out two by two before him. They would go and testify him, Yeshua is coming, Yeshua is coming. Well, that's interesting because what the Torah and the prophets are, they are witnesses of the king. They are witnesses of the seed. Look at what Paul says in Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God, meaning Yeshua, apart from the law, meaning the words become flesh. It's, come, it's, it's not just words on a page anymore. It's come off the pages. It's become flesh. Apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. See, the two greatest witnesses that testified of who Yeshua is, it was Moses and the prophets. The two great... Again, I tell you, when the gospel went out, I challenge you, go read Acts 18. Go read Acts chapter 24. Read Acts chapter 26. Read Acts chapter 28. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Every time they went out, they said no other things than that which the Torah and the prophets said would come. They used the Torah and the prophets. They kept holding up. Here are the witnesses. We have two witnesses that testify Yeshua is the seed. We have two witnesses that testify he is the Messiah. He had to send the law first. Valid witnesses. Continuing on, verse 20. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. Interesting. What do we know about this? It's an anchor statement. Do you think Paul understood what he just said? You might take it to a place where you should not have to say the law was given until the seed should come. He knows this is an anchor. He just threw an anchor overboard. Is the law against the promises of God? And think about that statement. You have to stop and ponder. See, because if the law was against the promises of God, that would mean that the Torah is the antithesis to Yeshua and they are incompatible and they cannot cohabitate. They cannot operate together. They cannot cohabit with each other. It'd be an impossibility. It's interesting, Marcion, the heretic, who comes out in the second century that went through and was, was literally spewing his perversity all over, dividing law from gospel, Totally dividing. The basis of that was that they were incompatible. Law is vehemently against the gospel, and the gospel is vehemently against the law. That was the basis that he went out on. And Paul just responds to that. And that is not the deal. It's not against the promises of God. Don't go there. They're working in tandem. It's building a house. The Lord's building his house. He's laying the foundation, which was the promise, and on that, he puts the law, but the house is not complete until he fulfills, until the seed comes. And then it becomes complete. So they're, they're, they're working uh, together. He goes on. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So again, the law in and of itself, it has no power to save. Why? Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law only has the power to convict it always has, only has the power to condemn, right? Not to save. But scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Messiah Yeshua might be given to those who believe. Given to those who are like Abraham, who believe God and, and, and Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse 23, 
But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Mashiach that we might be justified by faith. So here, Paul reveals that the law literally was entrusted with uh, there was responsibility to guard, to keep, the, and rear the children. And not just that, but Yeshua also points out that it, or Paul points out that it was to testify of him. All right? So moving on to verse 25, keeping in this framework. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in the Messiah, Yeshua. So after faith comes, see, again, I'm looking at this, and if you just look at this statement as it is, it seems pretty much that the law is rendered useless, that the law is rendered null and void. And the way he's using tutor, it is explicitly law. I mean, that, that's not debatable. So he's saying, we are no longer under the law. We're all sons of God through faith. Where have we heard that statement before? Again, getting to know Paul and understanding where he's coming from. We heard this in Romans. We read it in Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Exact same statement made in Galatians 3, 25 and made here. But are we supposed to go to the place that, okay, so the law has nothing more to say? Well, of course not, because Paul continues and he says, what then? Shall we sin, which is lawlessness, because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. There's the anchor, preventing us from going there. All right? So after faith has come, we don't go on walking in, in sin. We utilize these principles set forth by the pedagogue, knowing that the father of the house has actually entrusted him with these principles by which we're to live by. And when you think about it, this is where we're supposed to be. So the conclusion is this. No, we're not under the law. And we're going to talk a lot more about being under the law and really what that means later on in this series. But the law can no longer convict me. I mean, that great power that the law has, it can no longer convict me if, in fact, I call upon the name of Yeshua. If, in fact, I live a life that is honorable to him, not continuously walking in sin, but walking in holiness, walking in righteousness. I want to close with this uh, verse in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. And again, I tell you, it's not that the law is weak. How is it weak? It's weak through us, weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're actually gonna get deeper into that eventually as well. But it just lays it out. No, the law can't save you. It cannot. It condemns you. Yeshua, that circumcision on the cross where he bled for us, that's what's going to give us an inheritance into life.